Kim is going to read for us today uh, from Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. Listen as I read. Oh, please stand. Listen as I read. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. So we are in a series in uh, Romans chapter 8, and uh, the verses that you just heard are um, getting close to, to, to midway. And um, we've, we've referenced a few times that this is a, a pretty powerful chapter. It's a large chapter. It's 39 verses, uh, and it is kind of in the middle of the book of, of Romans. And Romans is this, uh, this treatise, this, this letter that, that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to a church to, to help them clarify and understand more clearly the message of, of the gospel. And uh, our prayer uh, over the course of this series is that, that, is the, that, that, that that's the outcome for us, is that we grasp uh, the depths of the gospel um, uh, in, in a more uh, significant way. Uh, today, uh, we're going to concentrate on one of the primary aspects of the new life that the Spirit brings. So if you're open to Romans chapter 8, maybe you'll notice that in verses 12 and 13, uh, they, they are, in a sense, a recap of verses 1 through 11 of, of the chapter. Uh, basically, Paul is saying, if you are in the Spirit, then you are not a debtor to the flesh, to the world. That you, your, your position has changed, that the Spirit has, has made you new. And, and last week, we talked about the fact that the Spirit gives us a, a, a new sense of reality, a, a deeper sense of, of reality. It invites us into the real story of the world. What is going on? It, it tells us that death is not the end of the story and that there's uh, more going on than we can see with our own eyes. The Spirit has put to death the flesh, has put to death the old, uh, the old you, uh, and it's brought you to life. Uh, and this opens up the logic uh, of a, a whole new way of, of doing life. Verse 13 uh, brings to light the active part that we play. And if you notice in verse 13, this is what Paul says. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so there's this invitation here and, and uh, sort of the nuance and the complexity of our journey with Jesus. A recognition that while the Spirit is the one who makes us alive, we're called to be part of this. There's an active part that we play as the people of God in our relationship with God. And he says very clearly, if you put to death the deeds of the body... And so there's this ongoing uh, effort, this ongoing work that we have in our walk with God. And sometimes we like to say this here, and I think it's a helpful thing to remember. The gospel destroys earning. It doesn't destroy effort. The gospel says that you could never, ever earn God's favor. But the gospel does not say you're on a lazy river and you, there's nothing to do. No, the gospel calls us to action. The gospel says, pour your life out. This, this is the good life. And you're going to fight your flesh. And you're going to fight desire. And you're going to have all kinds of, of twisted affections in your life. You fight against them. You do the work. 
Um, and so it doesn't destroy effort. It destroys earning. And Paul here is saying there's effort involved. He says, go, go for it. Work hard to, to, to put to death the deeds of the body. So the spirit brings us to life, but we participate by rejecting the way of the flesh and walking in the spirit. It's the invitation here. And then verse 14 begins to talk about a fundamental aspect of this new life. And it's really in the idea of a new family. So today, uh, we're going to talk about a huge global family, a loving heavenly father, and a perfect older brother. And part of the reason why the schedule laid out the way it did, and I did this on purpose, was so that we could talk about this text on this Sunday, uh, because October 3rd is actually World Communion Sunday. And it's, it's a Sunday that's observed uh, not, not by all churches, but by a lot of churches. And the invitation is to actually, on this Sunday, to just pause ourselves and think about the fact that we are not doing this alone. That we are not the only church that is gathering around the scriptures to understand the God of heaven and put our hope in the person of Jesus Christ. We're not the only church in Traverse City. By God's grace, there's great churches in Traverse City who are preaching the gospel and who love people and who, who long for the message of, the, of Jesus to spread to every street and neighborhood in our community. We're not the only church in Michigan. We're not the only church in the United States. And we are not the only church all around the world. And in part of the recognition of World Communion Sunday, we are going to have a little connection time after, and we're going to have donuts, donut holes. Uh, they are the international sign of peace. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so there will be available in the tent, actually, in the tent right outside after the service. But it's an opportunity for us to connect with each other as we celebrate this, this global reality. So the first point is a huge global family. If you look at Romans 8, 14, uh, it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And that sons, is, that's family talk. That's family talk. And, and the Bible, in a bunch of different ways, invites us into this reality that if you are in Christ, you have a huge global family. Now, if you got a bulletin today, uh, your bulletin is designed a little different. It's, it's uh, eight and a half by 11, and it's, uh, uh, there's, uh, it's, it's folded in half. And if you look in the inside of that bulletin, uh, there's a graphic. <clears throat> and this graphic is not a perfect graphic. Uh, there's some, some conversation about some of the data points. Uh, but maybe you've seen it. I've, I've seen it over, over the last few years. I've seen it bounce around uh, and show up in, in various places. Um, but as you see at the bottom there, it's the World Christian Encyclopedia, uh, Edinburgh University Press, put this graphic out <clears throat> a few years ago. And what's happening with this graphic is they're taking, uh, they're, they're looking at the globe and they're saying, who identifies as a Christian? And if you don't know, over 2.3 billion people identify as Christians in, in the world. That, that's out of 7.8 billion. There are 2.3 billion people who identify as Christians. When you look at this graph, on the left side, you'll see the, 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 what they call traditions or the denominations. So it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a bigger camp uh, where their stats are, are pulling from. Um, but the, 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 what I appreciate about this is this is, this is um, taking 100 people who identify as Christians and looking, if you were to look at the world and say, here's the world as 100 Christians. So think of percentages. And if you were to just take your time this afternoon, maybe, and, and look through this, and there's a lot of things on this graph to celebrate, 
lot of things to look at and to, to, be, to be thankful for. Um, I mean, just the, the malaria, like the, 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 the things that used to be really hurting our world, uh, those rates have dropped, and there's a lot of things to celebrate about education and even something as simple as internet access, like the, the, all, all, all kinds of things that this says about the development of the world. But based on where we're at in, in northern Michigan and the United States of America, and I'm speaking in English, um, there, there's a few data points that I just I wanted to just kind of uh, offer uh, for consideration. If you thought of the world as 100 Christians, only one in 10, or less than 10 out of 100, speak English. Less than 10 out of 100 are American, and, and less, less than four out of 10 live in a rural place. So th- th- those are three data points that are pr- kind of true, largely speaking, of, of this room. That less than 10 in 100 speak English, less than 10 in 100 are American, and less than, four in, or less than 40 in 100 are, live in a rural place. And then over 80%, over 80 of those 100 live on less than $37,000 a year. And so my bet is, that when I think about those stats of the English-speaking American living in a rural setting who makes more than $37,000 a year, that, that person is a minority in the global picture of Christianity. And on, at some level, I want that to be an encouragement to your heart that this message about Jesus has gone global. You know, in in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gathers up his followers and he says to them, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Jesus was standing somewhere when he said that. He was standing in a place called Jerusalem. And he was literally saying, we're here. I want the gospel to make it out to Judea and then out to Samaria and then all the way to Traverse City, to the ends of the earth, all the way there. And it has. The gospel has. It's made it all the way to Traverse City. As you look through these stats, it's made it all over the globe. And it is a phenomenal thing to celebrate this huge global family. So I produced that graphic or we printed that graphic so that you could actually take it and celebrate the way that God is at work uh, in the world around you. Uh, So we have a huge global family. In Christ, we have a supernatural family. Uh, You you notice in verse 14, it says that you are sons. Uh, Some of your versions may say that you're sons and daughters. The idea here is that we are children of God. If I'm a son and you're a son or a daughter, then guess what that means? It means that we're siblings. It means that when you come to Christ by faith, you get more siblings than maybe you want sometimes. You're, you're part of a supernatural family that the Bible does not hesitate to call sons and daughters. The, the other language is brothers and sisters, that we are, we are brothers and sisters with each other. And, and this is a posture towards each other that is unspeakably important, especially in this day and age when we've experienced the Me Too movement and we've experienced the Church Too movement. And there's been so many scandals and so many heartbreaking uh, aspects of of abuse that have occurred in our culture and within the church. And this invitation to recognize 
that our primary uh, connection is that of brother and sister. What, what a difference that would make if we primarily saw each other as brothers and sisters before anything else. You know, a couple years ago, I, I did a, a short series on friendship. And one area that I didn't address was opposite sex friendship. So we, we addressed uh, dating and we addressed friend, like uh, just your, your, like your friends, guy to guy friends, girl to girl friends. But I didn't really address opposite sex friendship. And I actually, at the end of that series, a few of you asked me about that. Like you didn't touch on how is a guy supposed to be friends with a girl that he's not married to or vice, vice versa. Well, here's at least a tip. This is the premise for the people of God. View every, everyone in this room, view them as a sister or a brother. What a difference that would make in the dignity and in the honor that we would share with each other if we saw ourselves the way that God invites us to see ourselves. Brothers and sisters, family, siblings. This is the picture that, that Paul is starting to probe into with the idea of the fact that we are sons and daughters of God. That means that you and I are brothers and sisters. And listen, the dignity that that deserves, it should break our hearts. I know that the, the Me Too movement is complex, and I know that the Church Too movement is complex, but we should start with broken hearts. We should start with broken hearts that this is the condition of the world that we're in. That the taking advantage of, of, of our sisters in the Lord, it, it, it should break our hearts. And maybe you're familiar with the fact that there's a major denomination in our nation right now going through these questions, and it's an embarrassment the way that that denomination is handling these, these challenges. We are brothers and sisters. So more than pastor attender, more than old or young, more than our, our ethnic makeup, more than economics. We should see each other as brothers and sisters. It is the dominant language for the church in the New Testament. You know, the Village Church is a church down in, in, in the Dallas uh, area, and they have done some great work on gender and on relationships in the church. And uh, the work that they've done has served our leadership team in a number of different ways. And they point out that one of the consistent commands in the New Testament is to love one another with a brotherly or sisterly love. And this concept, it's actually unique to the Christian tradition. Now, as I just said, Christianity has circled the globe. And Christianity has had an effect on so much more than you could ever realize. Uh, there's a book called Dominion, written by a guy named Tom Holland. And Tom Holland is an agnostic. He is not a Christian. But he wrote a history of the world, and in part, to just own the fact that Christianity has reshaped the world. And so many of the things that we value, things as simple as private property, are rooted in the movement of Christianity. Women's rights, so, so many things. If you're interested, read the book Dominion, and you will be, you will be uh, there's parts in there that will give you some friction too. But there's, uh, it's, it's amazing the impact that Christianity has had on the world. But in the first century, this idea of sisterly love, of brotherly love, was unique in the Christian tradition. Uh, a Bible scholar named Leon Morris, he says this, the idea of brotherly love is not found anywhere but among the Christians. God was their father, and they were all brothers and sisters. 
Therefore, they were united in a love that other people only saw in a natural family. The word consistently, uh, the word that was consistently used by biblical authors is the word Philadelphia. So maybe you're familiar with Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love. That's what Philadelphia means, brotherly love. It's the sense of love that's reserved for blood brothers and sisters. But Christian, yeah, Christianity came along and said, no, no, like there, there's, this, there's this next level. It's not, not, it's not only reserved for biological brothers and sisters. It's actually for spiritual brothers and sisters. And here's just a few examples from the Bible. Paul, writing to the Roman Christians in, in chapter 12, just a few chapters later, he says this, Love one another with brotherly affection, that's Philadelphia, outdo one another in showing honor. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Hebrews chapter 13, Let brotherly love, Philadelphia, continue. 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, uh, pursue godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. So you see, this idea, this persistent idea that the people of God should model Philadelphia, brotherly love for people that they're not biologically related to. That was new in the world. That wasn't happening anywhere. And Christianity came along and started to do it. And what did it provide? What did it produce? It produced a community that was like no other community that the world had ever seen. It was a place that was safe. It was a place where you could be welcomed in. It was a place where you could be loved, where you could love others and be loved by others, where you could be known and know others. Cultivating an environment of brotherly love, of sisterly love, is at the heart of life with Jesus. And it is the predominant relationship in the church between men and women, brothers and sisters, not subordinates. These relationships should be marked by honor, care, and sacrifice for one another. This is the invitation that Paul is poking at with this idea in verse 14 when he says, we are sons and daughters of God. Now look, uh, just on a practical note, experientially, at Sojourn, right now, you know, the disruption over the last few years that so many of our community groups have experienced is heartbreaking. Because our community groups is our primary space where we long to see this happen. That, that's the primary space where we want family to be on display. Where this spiritual reality of brothers and sisters, where you are known and you are loved. That, that, that's where we long for it to happen. And some of you, by God's grace, are in community groups that have survived. And you should win a medal for surviving these last couple years. Some of us are part of community groups that didn't survive. We, we didn't make it. We didn't survive the last couple years, and it's, uh, it, it, it breaks my heart. But as we reorganize and try to get ourselves in, in the position to relaunch our community groups in 2022, I plead with you to plan now to jump into one. It is a beautiful place to develop this family identity. Now, before we move on, I want to point out something that's, 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 that's pretty important. If you'll notice in verse 14... He starts off verse 14 by saying, for all who are led by the Spirit of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God. Remember the conversation that just happened. If you were here last Sunday, we talked about the reality of the Spirit making you alive. 
of the Spirit giving you eyes to see, of bringing your heart from dead to alive, of coming by faith in Christ to new life, being made new. So when he uses that phrase, for all who are led by the Spirit, I don't know what that stirs up in you, but I think what Paul wants to stir up in you is he wants to stir up in you, the, the, he wants to evoke Israel's wilderness wandering, where they were led, step by step, year by year, in, in sometimes in a bewildering sense of direction. And yet every day, it was a day of faith. It was a day of walking and trusting that God was leading them in the direction they should go with a pillar of fire and a, and a, and a, and a cloud of, of smoke. That th- Those things were, were guiding them through the wilderness. And this is a good reminder that our journey with Jesus is a walk of faith. We, we are being led. But that begins to erode this fundamental idea uh, of uh, I'm sorry, we we are being led, but the path is often not quite as clear as we would like. Maybe you've had this temptation. I know I have. And it's to try to make the Christian life real cut and dry. Like three steps to do this. Five steps to do this. Kind of get this sorted out and everything will be fine. Read this one book and everything will be fine. And like, this is the path. This is how God does it. And yet the Bible is continually putting us in this position of saying it's step by step. You know, the psalmist says that our path will be lit. It's not, it's not uh, headlights that light hundreds of yards out. No, it's, it's the idea of a lantern that just it, it lights the next step. And it's a, faith, it's a faith walk. It's a journey with Jesus. And as we think about this kind of intimate relationship with other people and actually receiving from God this, this, this huge global family, yeah, I can't guarantee how it's going to go. Sometimes our relationships get sideways. My, my heart's been, been hurt many times in relationships with, with people that I love dearly. And it hasn't, it, you know, things come along and, and relationships fall apart and it breaks your heart. But this, this is the reality of love. You know, C.S. Lewis says you, you've got two options. Either you love and you take all the risk that comes with that. Or you lock up your heart in this box, in this cold, dark box. And you, 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 you hide it away. And you know what? Yeah, no one will hurt your heart. But your heart's locked up in a cold, dark box. C.S. Lewis says that those are your two options And he understands why it's scary, but the invitation here is to walk step by step with Jesus, learning to trust him, learning to seek him. It is a journey of faith. So a huge global family. We also have a loving heavenly father. Look at verses 15 through 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So in, in verse 14, it talks about sons of God. And then in verses 15 and 16, it, it's elaborated quite a bit. Abba, Father, we are children of God. We have a better adoption than we could have ever imagined. Part of what's happening here is Paul is taking the word adoption which, which you know, meant something in the Greco-Roman world. Paul, Paul uses the word adoption uh, in various places. He uses it in a few different letters. And he takes this word, and it meant something in the Greco-Roman world. They, they knew what adoption was. It related to the adoption of children, and it was horizontal. 
And Paul does something extraordinary with it. He takes a word that before the writing of Scripture was directly and only related to horizontal adoption, and he tells us, I'm talking about a greater adoption. So I'm using a word that you all know and that you only know in this horizontal way. You only know in a temporal way. And he's basically saying, if you know this adoption, then I want to invite you into a bigger, grander adoption. And if that adoption happens, it will change the way you see everything. It reminds me again of the conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We referenced this last week. Nicodemus is a religious leader. He knows the scriptures inside and out. He hears Jesus talking and he is confused by what Jesus is saying. So he comes to talk to Jesus about it. And Jesus says, yeah, you do misunderstand me. You have to be born again. And you know what Nicodemus says? Nicodemus says, I can't enter my mother's womb again. You see, Jesus was using a term, born, that Nicodemus knew what that term was. He knew what it was to be born. And Jesus says, okay, if you can understand that, now multiply that by infinity. I'm talking about spiritual birth. I'm talking about new birth. I'm talking about being born again. And that's what Paul is doing with the word adoption. He's saying, okay, if you can get, if you can get horizontal adoption, now multiply it by infinity. I'm talking about spiritual adoption. I'm talking about being brought into the family of the God of heaven. And this adoption actually restores fully our relationship with the God who made us. Paul says that we use the term Abba, Father. Telling us that he is our true, relational, loving, intimate father. Paul says, as, as clear as possible, to, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, there's some confusion about this phrase, and I don't really want to get off on that rabbit trail. But let me just say it this way. The term Abba is just the Aramaic word for father. Pater is the, is the Greek word for father, which Jesus uses several times as well. And the point isn't Abba or Pater. The point is that there is this scandalous thing that Jesus has done that's almost in the category of heresy. Jesus refers to God as his father. Jesus does this multiple times, and it's a scandal. You know, if you track Jesus' life, Jesus starts drawing big, big crowds. And then what starts happening? The religious leaders start uh, opposing him. They want to kill him. And in John chapter 6, we find out that the crowds start to shrink. Jesus is, is, is uh, saying things that are considered heresy. And him calling God his father? Well, now what's Paul doing? Paul is saying, you know that scandalous thing that Jesus used to do? When he would actually call the God of heaven his father? We do that now. We do that now. We call him Abba, Father. And Jesus invited us to do it too. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, how did he teach them to pray? Our Father. Je Jesus says, I'm calling him my Father, but guess what? You can be invited into that too. You can have this Heavenly Father. He's accessible to you too. Intimacy, love, relationship. Paul wants us to know that we have the God of heaven's Full attention. You know, the, the first time that I remember this really striking me, that we had God's full attention, 
was I was uh, um, in college, and I went to a Christian college, and we had chapel every single day. And um, every once in a while, we would have a prayer chapel. And one time at prayer chapel, the guy who was organizing our prayer chapel said, I want you to break into groups of, of three, and, uh, and I want you to all pray, and I want you to pray out loud. And he gave us these various prayer points. And, you know, I grew up in a very, very small church, and I went to public school. So I had never been in a very large room with people who were all Christians, who were all praying. And so hundreds of people break up into groups of three, and we start praying. And it was super distracting for me because there's like, you know, let's just, however many hundreds of people, there's hundreds of people praying at a time. And it was very distracting for me, and I was trying to pay attention to the person that was praying, and then it hit me. It's distracting for me, but the God of heaven is hearing every one of these prayers. And he's fully invested in every single one of them. And he knows the hearts of the people that are praying. And let's be honest, there's a lot more people in the world praying in that moment than that were just in that chapel. And the God of heaven has the capacity to give us his full attention. And he wants to. This is Abba Father. He is invested in the relationship. He loves us. He cares about us with all of our ups and downs. Some good days and lots of bad days. But he, doesn't, he does not quit on us. You know, I am not a, uh, uh, an album listener. So, you know, the invention of Spotify has been fabulous for me because I do what artists hate. I just like pick out the good song on the album because I don't know that artists fully recognize this, but usually there's only one good song on an album. And I know they think that they're making this whole, this whole story, and if you put all the songs together, that's not how my mind works. And so I, 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 I usually listen to, to one, one song. Um, but there, there is a, an album that I actually do listen to, and it's a, a, a guy named Brian Schiltz and the High Country River Drinkers. And it's, he's, he's a Christian, and the album is, he's, he's a little scandalous, as you can tell, uh, the, the title of the album is There's No More Bastards. And over the course of this, it's 11 songs on this album, and over the course of this album, he is making the case time and time again of the scandalous nature of our Heavenly Father and our adoption into the family. And he does it in ways that step on your toes, especially if you grew up in kind of Christian, like proper circles. And one of the songs is, I do not regret you. And there's a refrain that's, that's repeated multiple times in the song. And it's talking from God's perspective. And it says, I do not regret you. I will not forget you. And it's just this beautiful, repetitious invitation to realize that the God of heaven, if you have come to him in Christ, he sees you and he sees every bit of you and he loves you more than you can even imagine and he knows you better than you know you and he doesn't quit on you. He doesn't regret you and he doesn't forget you. We have a loving heavenly father and I know it sounds impossible, but it's actually true. Now, Paul is also pointing to the Spirit's role here. And he's like he's saying the Spirit of God is whispering to our hearts. That the Spirit of God whispers to my spirit, you are a child of God. If, if, you know, I, I can relate to the experience 
of having that idea assaulted on a regular basis. Are you really? Are you really a child of God? You don't act like it. Who would do that again? Who would fail that many times? Who would think those thoughts? Who would say those things? And yet the Spirit of God is at work in the hearts of God's people, whispering, bearing witness, you are a child of God. We're going to run into more of this kind of activity from the Spirit in in the weeks ahead. But isn't that good news? Isn't it good news that we have a a loving Father who has not only uh, rescued us, but then he's given us his Spirit who whispers to our hearts, you are a child of God? You might have some pretty complex dynamics at play with your earthly dad. But we're invited here to see that God is the father that you have always longed for. So a huge global family, a loving heavenly father, and last, a perfect older brother. As you get to verse 17, um, Paul says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So here we have Christ showing up. Now we've got all all three members of the Trinity have, have shown up in this passage. And if you remember, the argument of the book of Romans, as we have traced it over these last few weeks, Paul is pointing to our one true hope of rescue is Jesus Christ. That everybody is in need of being rescued, of being made right, Nobody can make themselves right. Only Jesus can make you right. Only faith in Jesus will make you right. And anybody can be made right. And so Paul is pointing us to our hope in Christ. Now I want you to to notice that phrase in verse 17. It says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I, I want to invite you to consider the fact that that might be what the second half of this chapter is about. Because the next text, the next paragraph, is about the suffering. And the end of the chapter is about the glorification. It's about the end of the story. It's about what Jesus is going to bring to bear in the life of his people. And so I'm not going to dig much into that phrase today because we're going to be doing that uh, as we work through the rest of the chapter in the weeks ahead. But let me offer a few final thoughts. I want you to notice the contrast back in verse 15. So in verse 17, we find out that we are heirs, heirs of God, heirs with Christ, with with Jesus Christ. But back in verse 15, there's a contrast that Paul lays out. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. And you notice the word spirit is capitalized. It's talking about the, the spirit of God. And the invitation here is to ask the question of, do you live as a slave Or do you live as a son? And this, for me anyway, brings to mind one of the most startling stories that Jesus told. And that's in Luke 15. And if you've been around here for any period of time, you know how special this passage has been for us as a church. But it's it's, it's the story that we often refer to as the prodigal son. Uh, But that, that story that Jesus tells actually starts off with Jesus saying there was a man who had two sons. And the story that Jesus goes on to tell depicts the gospel in rich and and deep ways. So there's this man who had two sons. And one of his sons uh, wants wants his inheritance now. 
So his father uh, has to blow up his life in order to gather the resources to give his son half of all of his property. He gives his son his inheritance, the younger son, he gives him the inheritance, and the younger son takes off. And he takes off, uh, and he just parties uh, and parties and parties. And he uh, blows all his money. He lives a life that is far from God's good design. And uh, it's fun for a short season. Uh, and then he realizes that he has made a, a terrible mistake. He's out of money. He, does ha- he has no food. He has no friends. He has literally hit the bottom. And while we don't know exactly how long he lived at the bottom of the barrel, he finally decides to return to his father. But as he considers the return to his dad, he writes a speech because he concludes That as bad as I've been, as screwed up as I've made this, all the things that I have done over this season of, of, uh, you know, sowing my wild oats, there's no way that my dad would ever welcome me back into the family. I burned all those bridges. But but my dad has, has, has a farm. And maybe he'll give me a job. Like maybe I can come back and work as a slave. Maybe I can come back and work as a servant, where at least I would have food to eat and a place to sleep. That's his plan. As he approaches the house, something scandalous happens. The father sees him and takes off running towards him. When he reaches his young son, he tackles him and he kisses him. And the younger son probably was startled but he still tries to do the speech. He still tries to pitch the idea to his dad that you know, I, I know you have cut me off and I know that I've burned all those bridges, but maybe I could be your servant. And the father cuts him off. And the father basically says to his young son, no speech is needed. You've come home and you're welcomed into the family. All you need is need, and you came home. You returned. You recognized it. And the father stops the speech and restores his son to the position, uh, to his position in the family. Fully restored, scandalously forgiven, restoration. This is the welcome of God. Let me ask you a question. Who should have gone to get the younger son? So the younger son takes off and they hear nothing from him. And time goes by and they hear nothing from him. Who should have gone to look for him? You know, Luke 15 has three parables in it. The first two parables, there's something that's lost and someone goes to find it. But in the third parable, there's a lost son and no one goes to find the son. Who should have gone to find that son? Well, culturally speaking, the older brother should have. Unfortunately, this guy's older brother was selfish and bitter, he did not have a good older brother. Thankfully, you and I do. We have an older brother, a perfect older brother, who loved us so much that he came to look for us. And at great cost to himself to rescue us from sin and from ourselves. And because of our perfect older brother, Christ, because of, his, because of his rescue, we can now be welcomed into the family as heirs, heirs of God and heirs 
with Christ. And as we come home, the Father meets us with a welcome that we never would have expected. And he restores us into the family. And he makes us heirs with Christ. Everything that Jesus has is ours too. If you've come to God in Christ, you have been adopted into the family of God. And you now have the status of son or daughter. No longer the status of slave. Think about this. Here's the contrast. Slaves obey out of compulsion. Sons obey out of love. Slaves work under threat. Sons work out of delight. Slaves are insecure, fearing their masters. Sons are secure, knowing and loving their master. This is, this is from Tim Keller's commentary on, on the, the contrast of slave and son. And the invitation that we have to ask ourselves these very questions. Well, how, how do I view my heavenly father? Do I recognize what my perfect older brother has won for me? Do I recognize that if I've come to God in Christ, I have been adopted into the family. I have been restored to the family and I'm a slave no more. You're a son. You're a daughter. You know, if your Bible says that you are a son or a daughter, that's not a bad translation in the year 2021. Uh, If your Bible says that you are a son, let, let, let me tell you part of what's happening there. In the first century... If you were a daughter, you got no inheritance. And so to say that you were a daughter of God actually wouldn't mean a whole lot. But if you were a woman who came to God through Christ and you found out that you are now considered a son, that would mean you're in on the inheritance. That means that you're cut in. In our culture, that's not a problem. Uh, children, male or female, get, get inheritances. But in the first century, for a woman to be able to say, wait a minute, I could get in on the inheritance? Like that, that's saying something. It's not sexist. It's actually a, it's an empowering reality that all are welcomed, male and female, are welcomed to run to this invitation that is offered in Christ. Have you received the adoption of God? The invitation is offered to you too. You know, in that story in Luke 15, Jesus ends it kind of abruptly. That that story ends, and it ends with the older son. So the younger son's come home, and he's at the house, and he's welcomed, and they've thrown a party. But the older son, at the end of the story, is out in the field. He hasn't come home. And Jesus, like, stops the story right there. And a lot of Bible scholars believe that what Jesus was doing was, in a sense, leaving it for you. If you haven't come home yet, will you? Will you? All you need is need. All you need to do is come. Will you? So here we are on World Communion Sunday, together with hundreds of millions of Christians all over the globe, with Christ as our perfect older brother, who came to rescue us and restore us to a personal loving relationship with our one true Father. This is good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the global impact of the gospel. We thank you that in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus said to his followers, take this gospel and go. Go to the ends of the earth. 
God, your people have stumbled and bumbled in so many ways over the course of these 2,000 years. But in that one, in that one aspect, we've actually made some progress. The gospel's made it to the ends of the earth, and it's stunning. So God, we stand here not as uh, unique, but in a, in a cloud of witnesses with people, hundreds of millions of people all over the world gathering for worship, singing to you, opening your word and learning about you, longing to have our hearts realigned. God, we thank you for the open arms that you offer us, the adoption that is one in the work and person of Christ and offered so freely to every one of us. God, if there's anyone here who's not received that, that welcome, who's not come running to the rescue, the forgiveness, the restoration that you offer, would today be the day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.